Welcome to the latest episode of The Grower and The Economist. I'm Michelle Klieger, The Economist. And I'm Peter Kanjoyan, The Grower. Each week, we team up to tackle the biggest challenges facing small and medium-sized growers. We're one part grower and one part economist, just like your business. On today's episode of The Gate, we have a a guest joining us who is an expert on growing media, soils and growing media. Dr. Dan Jakes has been with the SunGrow Horticulture Group for uh, quite some time. And uh, Dan, welcome to the podcast. Share a little bit of your career path with our listeners so that everyone can relate to each other, please. Okay. Uh, Yeah, thank you, Peter. I've been with SunGrow, like you said, uh, quite a few years, 26 years to be exact. Before that, I had worked with Grace Sierra and Scott's and started off in the industry working for Pan American Seed, all in research, uh, technical uh, type positions. Got my PhD at The Ohio State University, my master's at the University of Maryland at Peter course, you were my advisor for that and got me going on my career path. So I always appreciate that. Welcome aboard, as I say. And can you give us a a brief history of growing media? Let's say going back two or three decades, where we've been, where we are today, things have changed. Catch us up a little bit on past and present, and then we'll talk about where we might go in the future. Okay. As far as in the greenhouse industry, the um, soilless media uh, has been around for quite a long time. Of course, it started all. It all started with some of the Cornell mixes, uh, which were peat vermiculite mixes. Uh, it has. It's progressed over the years. Uh, the addition of perlite, uh, then in U.S. plants using products like composted bark. Uh, New, new components are, are brought on every year. Uh, some of the newer components that have received a lot of attention in the past five, 10 to 15 years have been uh, coconut fiber or choir. There's uh, various wood products, other wood products other than bark, uh, processed uh, wood products like uh, hydrofiber and so on that are newer and uh receiving a lot of attention in the industry. So the industry has been a lot of use. Peat moss has been the one standard throughout, but there's been also a lot of use of other materials. Some have come and gone uh, for various reasons, but the main ones have stuck around quite a bit. Uh, Bark, perlite, Vermiculite, not as much now. There's been, with COVID-19, there's been a lot of issues with availability of various components. And vermiculite is one component that's become very difficult to obtain. So that's kind of going by the wayside a little bit. But uh, the industry has always used uh, byproducts of other industries and put them to good use. And uh, examples of this would be peanut hulls, rice hulls, yard waste compost, and so on. Mainly for growers, it's been bark, peat, perlite, and vermiculite. Dan, is 
Am I oversimplifying my saying it's the inorganic components that we're leaving behind and exchanging for organic? I think we're leaving some of the mineral type components behind to a certain degree, uh, either because of availability, uh, cost is another factor, uh, improvements in how the various companies handle their main products, such as bark and uh, peat moss and coconut fiber and so on. And then the addition of new things like uh, rice hulls and uh, hydrofiber. So those are all coming in as replacements that are co maybe cost effective and provide you equal or better uh, uh, results. The other big thing that's occurred is more of a movement towards natural and organic mixes. So these would be certified organic mixes that have to go through a different process for production to meet all the all the standards for uh, certified organic and that's we've seen some big increases there the tough part has been with fertilization of those mixes and so that's kind of held those back a little bit uh, but we're we're making inroads there as we go along so Michelle what's interesting here is in, in the world, in Dan's world of the growing medium, he's dealing, they're evolving in terms of organics, sustainable imports, uh, energy and whatnot. Dan, those are all things that Michelle and I have discussed as standalone topics, talking about organic growing in general. Yours is focused on the mix itself. Michelle, I know that Dan's spent quite a bit of time in peat bogs up in Canada and, and have shared with me a nice perspective on a perspective on peat moss and the peat industry that I wouldn't have had without his, his help. So Dan, talk a little bit about the perception of peat moss, the reality and the challenges as you see them. Yeah, I think some of the bigger challenges we have are coming from across the pond uh, so, to, so to speak. In Europe, there's been a push away from peat moss because they view it as something that you're harvesting, a non-renewable resource. In fact, the amount of peat moss that we harvest for the horticultural industry is 0.01% of the, the amount of peat moss that's available. And we are, we are uh, actually harvesting way less peat moss than what's being accumulated in all the bogs across the world, across, even just across North America. In reality, we're not removing a, a resource that's non-renewable. It is renewable. It's slowly renewable, uh, but the amount that we really remove is, is small. And there's been a lot of research done in the past 15 years, especially up at Laval University in Quebec on what to do once for reclaiming the peat bogs once we're done harvesting. The work that they've done and the, that the industry's kind of worked with them at, within a few years after a company will stop harvesting a certain bog area, you cannot tell the difference between that bog and a bog that's never been opened. You have the same type of plant material growing on there. The only difference is that it's lower, you know, because they've been harvesting uh, from it over the past years. 
Michelle, I think with your perspective as an international economist, there's some really interesting dynamics here. European uh, group feeling that it's uh, unsustainable to what Dan's describing as reality, North America, that we're maintaining it and managing it okay. Yeah. One of my questions was you mentioned some of the other materials that are now competing with peat moss. And I was wondering if those are upcycled, if the, the coconut and the rice are used for other sources and then they go into the become the growing media, um, or if they are, you know, a specific part of the supply. And I think that goes into Peter's question of the EU doesn't want the peat moss because of the environmental impact. But when we see high food prices, people don't want us using food products um, in non-food ways as well. So a sort of you're always making a choice. And so I was wondering how that fits into the conversation. Sure. Coconut fiber that's used in the in the horticultural industry is a byproduct of processing coconut fiber for other things. In Asia, they, they use that fiber. There's uh, weed barrier cloths that are made from that. Uh, they, they use it to stuff... Uh, car seats, mattresses, it's a long fiber, but there's a dust that that comes off of that uh, from processing that material. And that's what we use in the green, in the greenhouse and nursery industries. So that would be the coconut fiber required. The rice hulls, the majority of what we use are what's called parboiled rice hulls. So it's basically just the rolls, the hulls, coming from the rice after it's been processed, steam treated, and so on. So those tend to be uh, very light. Uh, they also will not have weed seeds because they've been steamed. So any viable weeds, any viable seeds would be, would be dead at that point in time. That sounds like a big advantage. Problem with that is they can't be used in really large quantities because they are so light. They need to be blended with something else. Uh, core can be used in larger quantities, but cost is a factor and weight is a factor. And it's usually blended with peat and other components. Uh, rice hulls would be the same thing. They tend to be more of a substitute for something like perlite. Michelle, you always bring this side of it that is so intriguing and interesting, but it's not what comes to mind for me as a grower. Dan, let me, let me sh shift this a bit. Most of our conversation is greenhouse-related, container production, mm -hmm. soil-less mixes for filling a pot, etc. cetera. Um, we also have small farmers, outdoor and, and high tunnel production, uh, who are part of our audience. Um, can you help relate this discussion to a farmer, perhaps one that has a greenhouse, that's easy to relate to. He, he or she might be starting young plants or in a high tunnel extending shoulder seasons. I'll be a little more specific. In high tunnel production, do you see growers amending the soil within the high tunnel? And number two is the bigger challenging question. How can you relate this discussion to an outdoor farmer? Uh, in high tunnels, I have 
we have had customers call and ask about using various mixes. Uh, they, they're looking for, in a lot of cases, they actually look at our retail mixes that are heavier in composted and uh, forest products, bark, and so on. Uh, but uh, uh, the scales that they're looking at, they're looking more at a larger volume of organic material. And generally, they'll use they'll just use peat moss, amend it themselves with uh, lime, and so on. But there will be some that will buy mix. Uh, it already has the lime to get the pH to where they need. Um, so depending on the soils that they have their high tunnels over, yeah. But generally, they're looking for organic material, and it would be the same for farmers. We just, as a matter of fact, I just uh, spoke with a blueberry farmer about a week ago from New Jersey, and he was looking at, at using peat moss and maybe some of our mixes to amend his blueberry crop. Interesting. Michelle, so Dan just took me back to grade school when my father had just started our greenhouse operation. And I can remember each summer before fall, and he would have us shovel into a bin in the greenhouse topsoil from the farm, from our fields. And then during the winter, we would use a a small electric uh, cement mixer. And the main ingredient to that mix was adding peat moss to the loam, lighten it and improve the aeration. And Dan, back then we we were using sand for the drainage, which really heavy. Um, Mm -hmm. And then perlite came along. It's really interesting to hear you talk a a bit and relate this to farmers and how they're improving their soil texture, soil structure, et cetera. So before I move on to another topic, if you have a farmer, and as you said last week, you talked to a blueberry farmer, when a farmer calls and is asking for your guidance in terms of his or he, her uh, field soil, what's the most common thing? I already touched on it, it's organic matter. But how are you steering farmers when they come to SunGrow for advice on soil management? You're right. The majority of them are looking for something to add as organic matter, whether some of them have access to local municipal compost, other composts that may be available around them. There are some that just are looking for more organic matter to add or something to help bring the pH down, which peat moss would help because pH, the pH of a peat moss tends to be around four. So that helps bring that pH down quickly for crops like blueberries and so on. So mainly what we are dealing with is questions on the amount of organic matter that they can get, the volumes that they can get from whether it's a small bale, a a large tower, and so on. There are questions at times about using a a regular growing mix and how that might impact their crop. Don't see that a lot, but I have seen a few lately ask questions about that as well. Thank you. What is the biggest area that you would use a growing medium on? I think I always just assumed that it was in a greenhouse. So it's kind of an eye opening that there are field applications as well. Well, generally in the fields, like mainly peat moss. So that's not so much of a complete growing medium that we're offering. But I would say as far as a complete growing mix, whether it's one of our standard mixes like the Metro mixes or whatever, in New York City, 
with rooftop gardening. In some cases, they just have a very large section that's set aside and they just have to, they just fill it with growing medium and they'll put shrubs, flowers, even small trees in there on the rooftops. In those cases, the big question that we get from them is the bulk density of the product when it's wet because there's a weight load maximum that they can have on a rooftop. That would be one of the larger areas, at least in the east. Out west, we have sold growing mix into strawberry industry for strawberry production and a few other fruit productions as well. Well, and then I guess you've got pretty good water filtration. Peter taught me that, that he told me the things I were worried most about in my garden was how much water the plants got and how much nitrogen they got. So the fact that you have to account for that carrying capacity on the roof is probably a pretty good sign. Yeah, the interesting thing is that what are considered the lighter mixes, like peat perlite mixes, are not the mixes that you recommend for rooftops because they do hold a lot of water, and water is the majority of your weight in a mix. So we tend to recommend the more aerated mixes, like the bark-based mixes, that will hold considerably less water. Normal usage levels of moisture, they'll be heavier than the peat perlite mix, but when you fully saturate them, they'll be considerably lighter. Already in this conversation, Michelle, it's being dominated by that one discussion point, organic matter, whether it's in a pot of uh, of a growing mix or it's in an open field. And I think Dan would agree that many of the principles of soil physics and growing media characteristics are similar. They're different, but the basic principles are similar, whether we're in a field or in a greenhouse. Right, Dan? Absolutely. Very much the same. What you deal with with soils is they've been weathered already. They're not going to break down as much. Uh, A soilless media whether it has peat and bark or peat and perlite or core, you know, any of those components in there, those will tend to break down a little bit over time. That's why you can't just add organic matter one time, say to a field or to a garden. Over time that mineralizes and becomes part of the mineral soil. So you need to continue to add organic matter. Yep. Okay. Let's shift gears briefly for a little bit. This is now, not the past, this is the present slash future of uh, growing mix that, that I want to shift into for a few minutes. Talking about organic matter, we'll, we'll stay in the, in the biological realm. The biological components are additives now. We're learning a lot. During the summer, we had Michelle Jones at Ohio State as a guest, and we talked about biostimulants, Dan, and she did a good job of defining what they are and describing some of the research she's been doing. What can you share with us to help growers? As a company, we do offer mixes that have mycorrhizae. That's one of the uh, biological stimulants that have been really, they've been researched and they've been requested a lot by growers. Unfortunately, in the Generally, in the greenhouse conditions, uh, what mycorrhizae do is they help the plant mine for minerals. And so they're really 
beneficial when plants are in a condition where they don't have a lot of nutrients. With mycorrhizae in a greenhouse, we tend to, if anything, we're usually in what, you know, what we've always called luxury consumption, Peter. So we're providing adequate amounts of nutrients. So do the mycorrhizae benefit the plants a lot in the greenhouse conditions? We haven't seen much proof of that. Uh, they, they may be beneficial under stress conditions. One of the major biostimulants, I think, that's really well known in the greenhouse industry uh, uh, is uh, from, from BioWorks. And uh, they, they've had a product that they've, that they've been selling for a number of years. And that, that product has been shown to provide disease resistance. And, and so some of those products, there's been a lot of research and they, they do seem to be beneficial. What we've seen as being very beneficial is a very general biological product, and that's earthworm castings. Uh, there's just a lot of biological activity going on with earthworm castings. They provide they provide quite a bit of uh, nutrients right off the bat, and they provide some nutrient holding. And what we found, and it's something that would be a great research project, but what we feel is happening too in, in use of earthworm castings is they help increase the biological activity so that the organic fertilizers, which tend to break down very slowly in a mix, become available probably a little bit faster. We don't have proof of that, but we seem to see that the nutritional levels are considerably better for crops when we add earthworm castings to a mix containing organic fertilizers. Those are the main biologicals. I don't think I mentioned the name of the BioWorks product, but that's Root Shield Plus. And uh, that's that's one that's just been around for a long time, and it has a proven track record, definitely. That aligns exactly with what Michelle Jones had talked about in terms of some of the limitations and the challenges. Dan, so, so as we got this understanding that in the greenhouse, the luxury consumption, we're, we're providing optimal nutrition, one of the uh, responses here is well, will these products allow us to pull back and reduce the amount of nutrition, the fertilizer that we're applying to the crop? What's your perspective on that side of it? Can we almost move the greenhouse closer to the field by cutting back, but adding the biological to maintain quality? I would say in some cases, earthworm castings being one, uh, and, that, and that's more like a compost as well. So we know that when we add compost, we can generally reduce the amount of fertilization. I would say in the case of earthworm castings, I actually just spoke to a grower about that today, and we put earthworm castings into his mix, and he has significantly reduced his feed program for growing. So that that is beneficial there. Uh, other additives, uh, if you're if you're improving the, the vitality of the root system of the crop, like with Root Shield Plus, mycorrhizae, you're increasing the surface area of the roots. You may be able to decrease the nutrient levels somewhat. It's not going to be a huge difference. And lots of times mycorrhizae are really more of an additive of a component to help with phosphorus uptake, for example. 
you might be able to reduce phosphorus, which is a great thing because phosphorus is one of the big contaminants in, in groundwater that we want to reduce. We may be able to reduce that to a certain degree, but a lot of the other nutrients, I'm not sure. I haven't seen enough information to convince me that we can do that. Okay, thank you. Last segment, Dan. Let's shift a little bit more toward the future. Spend a minute or two sharing with growers where someone like you with your expertise sees the future heading for growing mixes and uh, field soil management. I think I see it becoming a little more simplified. To a certain degree, some of it will become regional. If you're dealing with the large growing operations that supply to all the big chains, you're going to be looking more and more at peat-based mixes. We've done in a lot of the peat moss or peat moss perlite mix companies have done. We've dramatically improved our harvesting methods and the way we process the peat so that we're not needing to add as much perlite or, or other components like that to provide the aeration. The quality of the peat is there. And so we're significantly reducing that which makes a product that's a little bit more consumer-friendly in the end. Consumers are looking at mixes with perlite as, they look at perlite as being a little bit like styrofoam. There's not a great understanding of what perlite is from. It's basically a mined ore that's expanded with heat. So it's nothing at all like styrofoam, Mm. but it does have that same look. So we're... We're slowly moving away from that to more, definitely more organic looking mixes. So it would be probably in the future, you're probably going to see more mixes that are 100% peat or peat and bark, peat and wood fiber, any of those. We were talking about a lot, lot more movement towards organic. Okay. That's what I see occurring. Your vision there, Dan, that prediction of things being addressed on a more regional basis I think with the two of you having a background in seeds, Dan, we went in ornamentals through the, I'd say, 70s and 80s, where our seed breeders of flowering crops uh, bred them for a one-size-fits-all so that a cultivar would be grown coast to coast. And it took us a couple of decades to figure out that, no, that's really not the best way to do it. And now we have cultivars that are being bred and and sold for different regions of the country. It might be as simple as north versus south, humidity Mm -hmm. and light versus temperature, et cetera. But I think the the two of you might be able to weave this in. I, I think, Michelle, you dig into this national, international, regional, the economics of it, shipping heavy materials and the cost of freight and, and whatnot. There's a lot to unpack in this relatively simple topic of, you know, what we're filling that pot with. For sure. I guess I was almost a little surprised that it was moving towards a simplified and regional. I kind of expected you to almost go the other way in the designer. Where you are becomes very specific and what you're growing. And then there's this designer mix for that. I also have learned that a plant is a plant is a plant. So maybe that's not completely necessary. I would follow up on with these being bulky products and potentially some of them are heavy products. 
I could see that there would be more regional processing and distribution. Trying to get that across the country might be expensive and create more supply chain problems. So I could also see moving towards more regional production and then that creating more regional distribution and products. I think there will be some regional production, definitely. And to your point about products being tailored to a certain crops, there's there's always going to be some of that. And some of that will be regional. Organic mixes, the quote-unquote natural and organic certified mixes have generally been more regional because they tended to have a lot of composts and all that. We've kind of worked around that by having a decent peat perlite mix to which we're adding uh, vermicompost. And there's other companies doing similar things as well. And so that kind of moved out to larger organic production. They are definitely buying materials made in Canada, shipped down in bales in compressed format. But there are going to be crops that are going to require something a little more special and those may be regional just like you said because of the the bulkiness of the product for example some of our bark mixes we load a truck we're going to have about we could have as little as 75 80 yards maximum of on, on the largest truck available whereas our compressed pea perlite mixes we could have closer to 180 cubic yards on the truck or 200 yards. So that makes a huge difference, especially when freight costs are going up like they are. You no, know, it's interesting, guys. Uh, Michelle, we've had a, as a recurring topic the uh, issue of a centralized versus decentralized food production system. And now as a support industry for growing media, we're also talking about centralized versus decentralized regional production, et cetera. So Dan, we've talked at length in the past about what slice of the pie of industrial agriculture can we return to the community and the family farm. It's not a huge slice of the pie, but it's a significant slice. And I think many of us agree that the future, the the answer isn't one size fits all. It's going to be a combination of local and centralized production. And I think that's kind of Correct me if I'm wrong. I don't want to misinterpret the tone of today's conversation, but one of the things you're saying is, yes, there are certainly some base mixes that are good for, well, the 80-20 rule, right? 20% of your mixes will grow 80% of our crops, but we have that other component of specialty crops of sorts that things need to be tailored. You're hitting the nail on the head with that. For the majority of crops... We, you know, we have a few mixes. We always say we already have way too many mixes. Growers are better at growing than a lot of them think they are. They always are a little hesitant on change, but they're, most of the growers I've run across are able to deal with change and do very well with it. So we don't really need a lot of different mixes in a lot of cases, but there are a lot of specialty crops, especially when you go down, say, to the southeast where there's a lot of foliage and a lot of different types of crops grown. In those cases, a lot of the mixes are locally produced. There's a much larger percentage of local product of local production of mixes when you get to those areas because of the weight of the mixes and 
the components that are needed. Cost is a big factor. I'm thinking like Florida, there's a lot of small potting mix vendors there that just every blend they make is a custom mix for a specific grower. And that's just the nature of the industry down there because of the wide diversity of crops that they're growing. Okay, so there you have it, Michelle. Dan just uncovered for me what the theme of this conversation is. And I think it's more of simplicity. We don't have to make it too complicated. Dan, Michelle, and audiences at my presentations have heard me say for many years now, when I walk into a hydroponics supply store, just look down the aisle of fertilizers. There are way too many fertilizers. We don't need to make it as complex as they make it sound like Mm -hmm. it is. The cannabis industry, I think, is highly guilty of this, thinking that it's so special, this plant, that it requires all of these really precise fertilizers. So, Michelle, I think Dan's reinforcing a plant's a plant, yes. We don't have to make it more complicated than it is. We certainly have enough challenges keeping our businesses profitable with your world, the economics and the marketing and all of that. So wherever we can simplify things, why don't we do that? And I think we're hearing from Dan today that growing mixes aren't this big black box that we don't understand. The state of the science that Dan's sharing with us is we understand enough now to know that it doesn't have to be a very complicated mix. And then I would just add that Dan has also is making it more simple. I mean, for him, there are a lot of factors influencing what he is going to sell and what is going to be available and what he's going to put on the shelf. And so some of that is influenced by the price of the different items. Some of it was sustainability and how much the peat moss is renewable. You had the freight costs influencing what's available and where it's coming from. And then consumer trends like growing interest in organic or a pushback against the perlite. And so there are a lot of factors that Dan is now managing with what consumers are looking for and making that product. And then by the t- he's doing all this work. So by the time it does get to the shelf, it is one fitting all of these consumer and supply chain constraints and two then designed for your plant. There's kind of a lot going on that is making it simple for the rest of us. Yeah, well said. Are there any final thoughts or comments that... Yeah, I've gone out and given a lot of talks on growing media, growing media components, and just a couple of things definitely related, one related to the cannabis industry and one just related to what I talk about in mixes. Well, let's start with what I talk about in mixes. I usually just say, you know, let's keep it simple, stupid. For quick turnaround crops. You don't need anything very elaborate. Peat perlite mix of of some type is all that's really needed. For longer term crops, you you probably want something a little more that's not going to compress as much in the mix. It'll keep its aeration properties a little bit longer, something like bark. So I say anything you're overwintering, you definitely want to have bark in the mix. Something that you're you're going to pot up and sell within a few weeks or a few months. Peat perlite is really all you need. There's still a lot of growers out there that are using different mixes, and that's fine. They're working well with them. 
but they're adapting to the changes, some of them brought on by economic. Just the final thought on keeping it simple in the cannabis industry, we were visiting a cannabis grower in uh, Nova Scotia, and we were talking to him about some of these recommendations that are out there of, you know, these mixes with five, six, seven different components in there that are supposed to help. One is supposed to help with the flowering. Another one helps with development of the plant at different times. I just said, I really think with the way the crops are grown, a peat perlite mix is all you need. And he agreed. And his, his reasoning was the more things you put in the mix, if I have a problem, that's that many more things I have to investigate. Mm -hmm. So if there's only two components in the mix, it's going to, be a lot less work for me to figure out if one of those two components is causing a problem. There you go. That's where sometimes we had a university researcher, what Dan just said doesn't have a chance to come out. We like dealing directly with, with the farmers and the growers. Hey, Dan, I want to thank you so much for taking time from your day and sharing your expertise with us. It was a pleasure. Thanks, Peter. Thanks, Michelle.